0: Good morning, and well, hello again. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. Uh, Pastor Attic is Pastor Attic. Pastor Eric. That was a combination of Pastor Adam and Pastor Eric woven together. Uh, Pastor Eric is currently on uh, sabbatical, so uh, you get me for a couple weeks here. Uh, now that you know that, if you're gone the next few weeks, I'm going to assume that it was personally related to me and my preaching. So. If you've got a family trip planned, I just want to let you—if you want to roll the dice, that's on you. But um, I can be pretty delicate, so uh, I just wanted to wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. Um, being a father is a tough job. Uh, I know more about princesses and ballet than I ever set out intending to know, uh, but it's a job that that I wouldn't trade. Uh, and I know that God has called uh, fathers to do it well. I know most uh, fathers, maybe when we think of, of biblical verses to support us, we like to go to the uh, honor and obey your father. Uh, we like that verse, and I would just remind you uh, that with that comes the expectation that we would be fathers worthy of respect, uh, and that that puts a high calling on us, and we have our heavenly father as a model of what it means to be a good father, and that bar is set very high. Um, So I will pray for us fathers because we need it, uh, and I will pray for this sermon because it needs it too. So uh, if you'll join me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that I can approach you and call you that. Uh, May we not take that lightly. You are not some distant deity that that is um, uncaring or unloving towards me, but you say, no, call me Father. Uh, So Heavenly Father, I, I want to be uh, a father like you are, and I pray that for the other uh, fathers here, Lord, that we would model our our lives after you. And that means giving sacrificially. That means being forgiving. That means being slow to anger. That means being gracious and kind, uh, and it is a high, high calling. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lift us up to that calling, that we wouldn't accomplish it in our own strength. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning, that it would be instructive, that it would be teaching, that it would reach our hearts in ways that our hearts need to be reached, that your word would speak powerfully and true. Uh, So I ask for your help that you would accomplish that this morning uh, in your great power. In the name of our Heavenly Father, amen. Uh, We will be in 1 Kings chapter 17 uh, again this morning if you want to find your spot uh, in the Bible. I was going to ask if you have ever had one of those days where nothing goes right. Maybe some of you were like, that was today. Uh, We're glad you're here. Uh, A book came to mind as, as I was thinking about it from my childhood. Maybe you've heard the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Yeah. Who's actually read that book? All right. Probably very few of us have actually read it. Most of us had it read to us. It was that kind of a a little kid book. I don't see you going home on an afternoon and whipping out Alexander for a a little breeze through, but it's about this kid, and you may have guessed this from the title. His name is Alexander, and he has a bad day, Uh, like a really bad day. It starts with waking up with gum in his hair, and it just keeps progressing downhill from there. And I think kids like this book. I I, I liked this book because I think we can all relate to a bad day where things just don't seem to be going our way and life is just tough. But sometimes in life we have more than just a tough day. Sometimes we have a tough week. Sometimes we have a tough month. Sometimes we have a tough year, and there are seasons of life where we have tough years. At what point in our struggles do we start to look at God and ask the question, what's up? What's going on here? If you're in control, if you are sovereign, why is all this junk being allowed to happen to me? If I'm supposed to call you father, how about looking out for your kid every now and then? We think of the song, come thou fount of every blessing, and you're like, yeah, I'm ready for some of those now. Sometimes when we go through tough seasons, we know that that we aren't walking in the ways that God would have us live and so we're experiencing some bumps in the road and we can see maybe it's discipline, maybe it's consequences. God might be trying to get our attention. We might still be mad at God, but we can put it into a, a place in our mind where it makes a little bit more sense. But what about when you're doing things God's way and you still can't catch a break? you're living obediently and you're loving your neighbor and you're doing what you can to be growing in your faith, but things aren't getting any easier. In fact, they're getting harder. I think we sometimes can find ourselves in a place, whether we realize it or not, that we've come to the conclusion that if I obey God and do it his way, that God is contractually obligated to bless me. Maybe we wouldn't have the courage to say it out loud, but in our heart of hearts, we think it. I think a lot of people think that following God should lead to an easier life. I think the falsely taught prosperity gospel is dependent on this. God is just waiting to bless you. When are you going to be holy and obedient enough so that he's forced to? But that is not what I find on the pages of Scripture. And that's not what we're going to see this morning. You're going to see that God's plans are much bigger and go far beyond my personal day-to-day happiness and easygoing life. We're working on a four-week series on the life uh, and ministry of Elijah. And if you weren't here last week, we saw where Elijah confronted the notoriously evil King Ahab and his idolatrous wife Jezebel. And these two had been actively promoting the worship of Baal, and the nation of Israel was in this religious tailspin at the hands of these two leaders. And Elijah confronted Ahab with promises previously given from God about a drought that Israel would experience if they didn't walk with him. And Elijah risked his life to confront Ahab, and then after that we see that he goes into hiding where he is given water from a book and miraculously delivered food each day by ravens. Up to this point, from what we've seen in Elijah, he has been bold and he has been obedient. He's been doing exactly what God has asked him to do. I wouldn't describe what he's going through as easy, but we see God's provision on him as he does what is instructed. And so we sort of saw three things in play last week. We saw God instructed, Elijah obeyed, and God provided. And here's where we would maybe naturally start to think that this is where the blessings are really gonna start rolling in on Elijah. I mean, that's how this should work, right? That's how this should always work. He God told him, he obeyed, and, and now God's just gonna pour it out on him. That if we do what God tells us, that, that God starts clearing the way in front of us as a sort of spiritual machete that makes our paths easier. But as we continue to look at Elijah's life, that isn't exactly what we're going to see this week. In fact, for Elijah, life isn't getting any easier. We see in verse 7 that the brook dries up. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 7 says this, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, this is one of those verses that we read through for the first time, and it's really easy to read quickly and miss the full weight of it. We aren't given the exact length of time. We we don't know how long he'd been there, but it had been a bit. Uh, I'm getting it. At this point, he'd probably gotten past the difficulty of the whole raven delivery food system. Uh, Whatever germs the ravens might have been carrying uh, were better than dying of starvation, uh, his desperation, if you ever watched a show like Survivor or anything like that, when people get hungry, the bar for what's food just gets lower and lower and lower. Imagine the, that Elijah had settled into a pretty decent rhythm food in the morning, food in the evening, water from the brook. Between the delivery services and the utilities, he thought that he could stay here for quite a while. But I don't know about a plan B for when the brook goes away. There wasn't a backup water supply nearby. Now, I've always dreamed of, of someday having a little babbling brook that runs through uh, my backyard, but I wouldn't consider myself a brook expert by any stretch. But I'm under the impression that a brook doesn't just dry up overnight. Imagine each day that he went out there, he said to himself, you know, does it seem a little lower than last week? And he tells the ravens about it, but they don't seem to notice or even care. That's just rude. All they're thinking about is some guy with a chariot out back that left garbage uncovered and they're just heading over there as soon as their <laughs> mission's done. He's talking about the brook and they just, go oh, they're gone. <laughs> and more time goes by and what was once called a brook would now be called a trickle. He's got to bend down real far, probably gets his beard in the water to get a drink now he hasn't been there long enough to know the historical trends of the water table of that region. And I'm sure it usually drops pretty far, but then it rebounds real strong, right? He's saying, I'm God's prophet. I may be in the middle of nowhere, but I'm right where God has sent me. The brook will come back. We aren't told his exact thought process, but at some point you have to imagine that he started praying. You imagine each day and each inch that goes away, those prayers are getting a bit more desperate. But the brook diminishes to the point that eventually we're told it's gone. I think this story is very specific. The brook was gone. It was not just low. At what point does Elijah begin to second guess his original prayer? God, I I thought that the point was to teach Ahab and Jezebel a lesson, not me, not your prophet. I'm the one faithful dude. Why are you punishing me? What is killing me accomplish? Nobody's even going to know. I'm all alone. We're never told that God gives Elijah any indication of what he intends to do next. I wonder if there's a point where Elijah's prayers started to sound like those of the Israelites, and that's not usually said in a complimentary fashion. God, did you really bring me out here just to let me die? So while in our reading, verse eight's gonna come fairly quick, I want to remind you that it did not come quick for Elijah, or nearly quick enough. Verse 8 and 9, then the word of the Lord came to him: Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. We see at this point that Elijah's about to go on a, a treacherous journey. He's got some treacherous travel ahead of him. Now, I bet he was pretty likely and ready to go at that point. I'm not under the impression that he carried with him a lot of luggage. He probably packed up his extra garment of hair and leather belt. And I mean, a guy just doesn't travel with only one garment of hair, but God, I'm packed up. I'm ready to go. I, I Say it, and I'm on my way. I will go anywhere from here. Wait, God, you want me to go where? Zarephath? Do you have Google Maps up there, God? Do you, you know where that is, right? You understand that that's not in Israel. You know that that's where Jezebel's from, right? To put it lightly, she's not accepting my friend requests at the moment. Could you send me to, to Tishbe or, like, seriously, anywhere else? God, Zarephath is 100 miles away and I'm the most wanted fugitive in all of Israel. There is a 0% chance that I make it there alive. But that is exactly where God sends him. Very unexpected. Oh, and once you're there, God tells him, "I have directed a widow to take care of you." With all this alone time, how much how often do you think Elijah tried to set God straight? God, don't you understand how famine works? Widows in this time are the most vulnerable group of people. I can guarantee there is one house in that region that is out of food, and it's going to be that house. I should be there taking care of her, not the other way around. At this point, I think it's hard to say if it's trust or a realization that he was going to die if he just stayed put. But at this point, what did he have to lose? And so whatever his motivation was, he makes the journey he does in fact receive food from this widow in verse 10. So he went to Zarephath and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks and he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And she was going to get it and he called and bring me a piece of bread, please. I like her response in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, She replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug, and I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me and from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah told her, and so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So Elijah comes to town, he survives his treacherous travel. And he sees this widow, and, and testing her to, to see if she's sort of the one that God has directed to help him, he puts this request in front of her. Can I have some water? And she's like, sure, why not? I'm about to be dead. I wouldn't want you to be parched. So she goes and <laughs> fetches him some water, and he has the audacity. So while you're up, could you, you know, get me a croissant or a biscuit, or I don't know what your town's local delicacies are, but... Um, could you make me a fresh loaf of bread? And she replies, essentially, well, it's not like these past 90 seconds haven't been amazing that we've known each other, but I have just enough food left in my house for one last meal for me and my son, and so I'm going to go make that, and then we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. She kind of looks at him and goes, you know, essentially, I'm not sure if you know how terrible droughts work, and at this point, I imagine Elijah is sort of Clearing his throat, going, yeah, the drought that I caused. Um, (laughs) She lets him know it's been a tough go lately for her and her family. And she lets out this detail in verse 12 that that I think is interesting. And she says, as surely as the Lord, your God lives. She must have picked up at some point that he was was an Israelite, whether by uh, his accent or or some other method. She refers to, to your God. This isn't her God. She is certainly not a follower of Yahweh. And in spite of all of this, Elijah says, do what I've asked, bring me a little something, and my God, the God you don't believe in, will make sure that you don't run out of food until this drought is over. And she has this moment where she has to decide if she's willing to put her trust in this stranger and in God, and we see, in fact, that she does. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her, and so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the words of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is one of the parts of the story that kind of raises my question. Um, If God was going to continue to provide for Elijah in a miraculous way, why not just keep him in the Kerith ravine where he started? You ever asked that? I think that we see that Elijah ran the risk that we all run the risk of, and that is the risk of assuming God's provision. Anything happening for long enough, and we have the very natural tendency of taking it for granted. In my reading this week, there was one quote that I found to be particularly powerful speaking about this, and it said this, "'Because of our proneness to look at the bucket "'and forget the fountain,' God has frequently to change his means of supply to keep our eyes fixed on the source. Hear that? One more time. Because of our proneness to look at the bucket and forget the fountain, God has frequently to change his means of supply to keep our eyes fixed on the source. We can get wrapped up in the blessing and forget the blesser. There are times in my life, maybe there are times in your lives where you've seen God come through where you really need it. Maybe a new job, maybe a promotion, or maybe some other unexpected blessing. But how quickly do we start to take it for granted? I don't think God intends to always meet our needs the same way because of this. And this is for our benefit that that he would do it so that we would see his hand at work instead of crediting our own. So we see that, that God does... Meet the physical needs of Elijah after this long and treacherous journey in a very unexpected way, and that through the home of this widow. We're intentional in how I say that, he says God meets Elijah's needs. He does not meet all of Elijah's wants. I get the feeling he's in a stretch where he's not going to see his wants met for quite some time. His life is not about easy living day to day. His life is a training ground to learn and to trust God for his daily provision. At this point, I imagine Elijah thinks maybe they've turned a corner. God's promised that they'd have enough food until the rain came. Let's just keep our heads down and ride it out till this drought is brought to an end. Oh, if only it would be so easy for Elijah. And we see next is an unexpected death of a loved one. Verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill and he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Some time had passed. Uh, We're not told how long again, but Elijah had become a part of this family. Uh, Each day they go and make bread, and each day there's enough to supply what is needed. We know that this woman didn't have a lot, but she had her son, and that was very significant to her. And then the son gets sick, and we're told he gets sicker, and Uh, eventually he dies from that sickness and in her grief she lashes out at whoever she can find and right now that's Elijah what do you have against me man of God did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son we see In her statement, uh, a belief that was common back then, we saw it in Jesus' time, we we still see it at times today, where sort of negative things are attributed to the result of sin. Uh, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples as they brought a a blind man to him, and the question was, who sinned? Who caused this? And Jesus responds, it doesn't work like that. God is not nearly so formulaic. This woman is wrestling through some of those same kinds of questions. Here we see Elijah, in his maturity, respond well. It would have been very easy for him, uh, maybe very easy for some of us, to shout back about how ungrateful she was. That the only reason that either of them lived this long was because of him. There's an old proverb about not biting the hand that feeds you, and I think that's particularly true during a drought. But he accepts this tongue lashing as, that he doesn't deserve as this woman deals with her loss. And he knew that in that moment, he was not going to talk her out of her grief and that she wasn't thinking clearly because of it. And so he calmly asks her for the boy. Verse 19, "'Give me your son,' Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, "'Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy "'even on this widow I am staying with "'by causing her son to die?' "'Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times "'and cried out to the Lord, "'Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him.' "'The Lord heard Elijah's cry, "'and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child "'and carried him down from the room into the house, "'and he gave him to his mother and said, "'Look, your son is alive.' "'Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. I don't think our goal from this story is to break down the logistics of the miracle. You know, why did he lay on the boy or why did it take three prayers or whatever else? There's, there's no shortage of uh, good commentaries out there if that's a question that, that you want to chase down. But in this moment, I think what we are supposed to see is that Elijah's faith is off the charts, literally. Elijah's faith is put to the test and he asks God to do something that he has not ever done up to this point that has not been recorded in scripture. This is the first instance on the pages of the Bible where we see someone who was dead coming back to life. And this was a detail, I hadn't quite put that together with this story, that this was the first uh, instance that we're told in scripture of this happening. I didn't realize that until I studied this week. Now, I don't want to say that they're simple miracles. Um, Using ravens as a delivery service, uh, making bread supplies last last indefinitely, those are nothing short of amazing. But there is no power that brings us to our knees in awe before God like the power that he has over life and death. And God used this to bring this widow to a point of belief and look at her response Instead of the Lord, your God, she now says, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Elijah's trust in God is taken to a whole new level, and I imagine he's left asking the question, if God can do this, is there anything that he can't do? And that's the kind of faith that that he's desperately going to need as he approaches his next difficult challenge. What might seem like pointless suffering is instead a building block of faith for Elijah that God intends to use later. Because see, when we come up against sufferings or difficulties and challenges, it's easy for us to see them from a very human perspective and think, God, I've been obeying. Our human perspective says, I'm obeying God, shouldn't my life be easier? But God isn't looking at us from a human perspective, and thank goodness for that. He's looking at us from a God perspective and from a perspective that has a much bigger picture and has a whole lot more information. And so while we see things from our perspective, God's perspective sees this. Obstacles make an excellent opportunity for training. There's a woman that I uh, respect, and and several years ago she was going through some stuff, uh, like deep end of the pool kind of stuff in life. She had every right to yell and kick and scream and be ticked off at God. But as we talked, I asked her, I said, how are you doing with all the things that are going on? And She quoted back to me Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, and it says this. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, or my thoughts than your thoughts. And She asked a good question, essentially. Who are we to question God? If you know the story of Elijah, and and we'll get there next week, God is going to do some really amazing things through Elijah. But in order to get to where Elijah trusts God enough to do that, he has to walk him through these difficult situations that we've looked at this morning. At no point do we get the indication that that God sits down with Elijah at the very beginning and lays out a five-year plan of here's all the different things that I'm going to do. If you're a type A person, that might be terrifying to know that never happened. God never said, oh, there's going to be a drought, and it's going to get hard, and then harder, and then a bit harder than that, but then there's going to be this really awesome thing on a mountain, and trust me, it will all be worth it. Here's the truth I think that we can all learn from Elijah in these situations. Sometimes God's instructions come one step at a time. We don't always like that. Feels like with Elijah, he just keeps asking him this question each step along the way. Do you trust me yet? Oh, you thought you fully trusted me. You didn't. Let's try this. Do you still trust me? Because with what I intend to do with you for my glory, it will require you to fully trust me. And I'm trying to get you to there. I think it at times is easy to think that God's primary concern for us is our day-to-day fun and happiness. And it sure doesn't seem like that's his intention with Elijah. We can realize it in ourselves at times, or maybe as a parent you realize it in your, your kids, that there are some current discomforts and difficulties that are necessary for future growth. And a God that we don't allow to walk us through hard stuff, we aren't going to allow to build us up to accomplish much of lasting value either. I shared uh, last week my my struggles and failures to achieve my dreams as a basketball player. Uh, It turns out I was a better soccer player. That was where God was directing me. Uh, God, in his grace, allowed me to play soccer much longer and at a higher level than I ever had the physical ability uh, to play. Uh, And so I got to play college soccer for a couple years. Um, I remember showing up to training camp as a freshman, and we started having two-a-day practices right away. And... um, It's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Uh, Just physically was just exhausting. And after practice, everybody went up to the training facility, and and we were told to get into the ice baths for recovery. Uh, And if you don't know what an ice bath is, it's exactly as terrible and miserable as it sounds. Up at the training room, we had these big tubs, and they were about half full of water and half full of ice. And we were supposed to get in them to help speed up the recovery of our bodies so that we could practice later that afternoon or practice the next morning. And we walked up there for the first time, and all of the returning players jumped in fully submerged up to their neck. You want to know what the new players did, myself including? <laughs> we dipped our feet in, and I'm not kidding. And it was uncomfortable, and it was cold, and we thought that it was pointless. Figured it was just a hazing ritual. We hadn't figured out where it was going with yet. And I remember going back to practice later that day, and I was so tired and so sore. And so next day, practice. Same ice baths. And this day, I had the courage to get into my knees. And the next day, I got into my waist, and that took a lot of courage too. I remember it was finally about the third day, one of the freshmen, and it wasn't me, I had the courage to fully go in up to their neck. And so I did it too. And I will tell you, it was terrible. <laughs> Just truly terrible. But thankfully, everything goes numb fairly quickly, which is a bad sign if that's what you're rooting for. I remember sitting in there and coming out and feeling so much better afterwards. And I was able to train harder and longer the next day and recover quicker. And see, we had experienced players on our team that had done this before. And they knew that if we as a team wanted to accomplish our goals, that we would have to overcome this momentary discomfort and pain to get where we wanted to get in the future. And I think it's like that with God. And we see that in Elijah's journey. Each day, each step, he's asking, do you trust me? Even when it's hard, even when it's really hard, do you trust me even when it hurts? Do you trust me when it doesn't make sense to you? Do you trust me and I haven't revealed the next step to you. Just for a teaser, if you still have your Bible open, flip to just the first sentence of chapter 18, where this is going next week. Just the first sentence says, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. You can almost hear God say after all this, all right, he's ready. Here's my question for you to to go home with to think about this week. Are you willing to let God work through the hard stuff? Are you willing to be obedient, even when it doesn't lead to immediate blessing? Do you trust that God knows more than you do? That he has a plan that's greater than your plan? What is God trying to teach you right now that he's using to train you for something else down the road? Maybe you came in here this morning hoping for a sermon would tell you that everything's going to get better. Uh, A couple weeks back, Adam reminded us from Revelation that good does win in the end, that that's good news. But today might still be really hard. But the same God who walked with and guided Elijah is the same God who promises to walk alongside us. So my question for you this morning is, do you trust him? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy to say I trust you. It is very hard to live out a life that shows that I trust you. Lord, there are some hard things that you allow to come into our life that get placed in front of us, and life hurts, and life's hard. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by the life of Elijah, encouraged by the truth from your scriptures, that you are still there with us, that you have things that you are using difficult times to shape us towards, that you are using them as a season of training. Heavenly Father, give us faith to see that when we can't see that. Give us trust that believes in that when we have a hard time believing in that. Heavenly Father, we want to be more and more like you and grow to be that, but that's not going to come easy. Heavenly Father, help us to trust you. Help us not to just say it, but help us to do it and to feel it and believe it. And I know that I cannot do this in my own strength, Lord, so I ask for your help. We ask for your help in the name of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thank you.